Welcome to the Faith Element Podcast for the August 14, 2022 session, focusing on Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, Grapes of Wrath. I'm David Cassidy. I'm Nikki Hardiman. I'm David Adams. And I'm Bert Montgomery. So Regina and I, earlier in our marriage, we, we really love looking at flowers and plants and Regina's father was really good with plants, as was mine, and so we would go to nurseries and look at things, and our favorite phrase, which Regina coined, was, that's so pretty, I'll bet we could kill it. (laughs) 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 You could hear her saying that, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes, absolutely. And often that was true, Uh, although I have to say, she has become quite good with plants. She's worked at it, and... Um, I, tr- I try to just stay out of the way. But anyway, I'm curious, wh- what kind of gardener, if any, are you? Are you any good at it? You avoid it? What's what's the deal? The Montgomerys avoid it. Jensie's very much like um, like Regina, although she has never gotten good at it. She, she knows she's going to kill anything. She tells people, don't give me things. Don't give me plants. I, however, am pretty good with keeping a little um, cactus alive in my windowsill. Because <laughs> if I forget to water it, so be it. And it's still there. Yeah. I like that. Sure. Low maintenance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one time I mentioned to my mom that I would like to have an aloe vera plant because it was about the time my kids were playing outside all the time and they were getting ant bites. And I remember my grandmother had an aloe vera plant. And it was the best thing for ant bites. So I thought it'd be cool to have one. And so she said, okay, I've got a big one at home. Um, I'll split it and I'll bring it to you because my mom has 10 green fingers. And so um, she repotted the aloe vera plant for me, and then it promptly died. And what she told me was that she heard that it was coming to my house, and instead of dying a slow death that it would at my house, it just decided to kill itself to begin with for a quick, just to make rip it quick the band-aid and easy. Off. <laughs> so, um, no, I have not tended to be, but I will say that now I have a great windowsill in my kitchen. And I am happily growing an aloe vera plant that does treat bug bites for my children. Awesome. But no, I would not say that I am good at gardening at all. I kill most things. Oh, I'm I'm terrible at that. I'm good at harvesting things, <laughs> you know, but not so good at keeping them alive to get to the point where I can harvest. Them. <laughs> <laughs> of course, my wife is exceptionally good at all this stuff, and she even knows the names of flowers and stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's like, wow. Yeah, that's a flower. <laughs> <laughs> It's orange. That's about as far as I can go. So yeah, don't trust me to take care of your plants. So this crew should not be caring for anyone's plants. Really not no. a good idea. No. Not a good idea. I bet Daniel's really good at it. I bet he is too. I bet he, he like. He would be. He probably does. He probably goes out and works in his garden right after he makes homemade biscuits. He probably does. Yeah. Come in. Dear listeners, Daniel Glaze is very good at making homemade biscuits. He likes to take pictures of them as soon as they come out of the oven and send them to the podcast crew as a form just, of torture. It is torture because you just want a biscuit, but he's too far away. Yep. Yep. Yes. Well, we miss Daniel, um, but he he will hopefully be back with us uh, next episode. But we're glad David Adams is with us. And um, we are still in Isaiah with an interesting and familiar passage title, Grapes of Wrath. Bert, would you help get us started? Yeah, I'll try. You know, I, I wish Michael Stipe were here 
Michael Stipe, if you don't know, was the lead singer and songwriter for the great little band from Georgia called R.E.M. And one of their earlier big hits, before they got enormously huge, starts off with Stipe's nasally voice singing, This one goes out to the one I love. Which, when not the nasally thing, says, This one goes out to the one I love. And I've been singing it in my head ever since I... By the way, I love you, Michael Stipe, if you're listening. I've been singing this in my head ever since I read the first line of today's passage from Isaiah. I can imagine Isaiah like a town troubadour, walking through the streets, pausing now and then, strumming his guitar. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. Now, it's a love song of sorts, but not a love song you'd want played at your wedding. This is the kind of brokenhearted love song like Taylor Swift or Alanis Morissette or, heaven forbid, Fleetwood Mac might sing. Sorry. Whether or not Isaiah carried a lyre or a tambourine or any such thing around with him, I don't know. King David is known for, and little David is known for playing and singing joyful songs, of course, but Isaiah, he's more of a blues man, if you get my drift. This love song he sings ain't all that uplifting. It's like when B.B. King wails about how nobody loves him but his mother and she could be jiving too. There's pain in this song from Isaiah. Real pain. God has poured out God's love on these people. And what does God get in return? Then it becomes a song of anger and wrath. The imagery that the prophet uses is that of a vineyard. God does all of this beautiful, wonderful wonderful work. He tends the garden. He nourishes this vineyard like no gardener has ever tended a vineyard before. And yet, instead of the juiciest grapes or the very best wine, God gets junk. Bitter, nasty, grotesque, ruined, poor excuses for grapes. And that's why they're going to lead to wrath. Now, let's pause for a moment and remember that the collection of writings we have in our Hebrew scriptures that we call Isaiah, it covers about 200 years of Israelite history. And this first section is associated with the actual prophet Isaiah, who, according to scholars who know such things, was apparently a well-educated man with some level of high social prestige, even, they say, was friendly at times with the monarchs, at least for a while. Isaiah, you see, had a tendency to preach against the rulers and the wealthy and the uh, upper class that he was sort of a part of. He said they were all shallow and emptiness, hollow, especially when all of these things are being held up and sustained and justified by religion. Now, a little bit later, when we get far beyond this text, we find that the prophet gets really frustrated that the people aren't paying attention to what he's saying. So he decides to get a little bit more dramatic. He starts walking around naked, not even with the sandals. I mean, it's important to point that out. I would think if you're naked without sandals, right? But it's important to point that out according to the scriptures for three years. And, you know, he gets a little more attention that way. I'm not saying we should try that. But as we mentioned in last week's podcast, there's a lot of godly folks out there 
pointing out the other the utter corruption in our churches and among religious institutions as we have all blended so easily with with the marketplace greed that's run amok with racism and sexism and nationalism on steroids and so on and so on and it just seems like nobody's listening to us and we're watching the fabric of our society tear apart Today's text say we're the grapes. We, we're the vineyard. God planted everything, and God did everything good. But for some reason, not God's fault, not the gardener's fault, the grapes and the vineyard themselves decide they just rather be nasty, bitter, and poisonous. Church, can we decide to be tasty grapes? Can we choose to do the things that make us a beautiful, rich vineyard for the whole, something God would be pleased in? We know from Isaiah that means doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly, as well as from Micah, as well as from Amos, as well as from Jeremiah, and so on and so on and so on. Listen to this text as I read it from the message translation. Listen for some of the current problems, structural problems that we ourselves have created with our marketplaces, with our politics, with our religious institutions, with our educational institutions. And let's wonder how we, as the church, might choose to be good, nutritious grapes, a plentiful, rich vineyard before it's too late. The message translation. I'll sing a ballad to the one I love, a love ballad about his vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard, a fine, well-placed vineyard. He hoed the soil and pulled the weeds and planted the very best vines. He built a lookout. He built a wine press. It was a vineyard to be proud of. He looked for a vintage yield of grapes. But for all his pains, he got garbage grapes. Now listen to what I'm telling you. You who live in Jerusalem and Judah, what do you think is going on between me and my vineyard? Can you think of anything I could have done to my vineyard that I did not do? When I expected good grapes, why did I get bitter grapes? Well, now let me tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll tear down its fence. I'll let it go to ruin. I'll knock down the gate and let it be trampled. It'll turn into a patch of weeds, untended, uncared for. Thistles and thorns will take over. I'll give orders to the clouds. Don't rain on that vineyard, ever. Do you get it? The vineyard of God is the country of Israel. All the men and women of Judah are the garden that God was so proud of. God looked for a crop of justice, but instead found them murdering each other. He looked for a harvest of righteousness, but could only hear the moans of the victims. 
doomed to you who are buying up all the houses and grabbing all the land for yourselves, evicting the old owners, posting no trespassing signs, taking over the country, leaving everyone homeless and landless. I overheard God say, those mighty houses will end up empty. Those extravagant estates will be deserted. A 10-acre vineyard will produce, produce only a pint of wine and a 50-pound sack of seed, barely a quart of grain. Friends, Isaiah is asking, what kind of vineyard will we be? It was interesting to hear the message translation because while we're sitting here, I'm reminded of a big story that's going around the news where we live where they're talking about how hundreds of people are about to lose their homes uh, because they're renting from low-income housing, and the city has allowed people to come in and buy out that housing. And they say, oh, we're going to renovate this and make it better for everybody, and of course charge more. And the people there can't even get housing anyplace else because they're all in Section 8 housing or trying to find some place to go. And so now there are hundreds of people in the county I live in that have no place to go or are coming upon that time because someone wanted to buy a house and make it bigger and make it better and make it nicer. Much like this passage you're reading here from Isaiah, you know, that same social justice thing that we're talking about here that Isaiah was talking about as an example is literally going on five miles from where I'm sitting. And it, I will add, it's not just the poor. No, it's the middle class that are losing their houses. We're having this problem in college towns like Starkville, especially big money SEC towns, right? People come in, they're buying up residential houses for Airbnbs on big game days. And people who are working in the universities can't afford to get a house. So people who work in town, who live at the university that's providing all this stuff are buying houses 30 miles away. And there is an article online right now that cities across the country are facing a housing shortage because people can't find housing. And that includes apartments. And it's not that it's not there. So, yeah, this is a real thing. And when I heard the message translation, that's exactly where I went, David. Mm -hmm. The same is happening in Atlanta. I mean, all over Atlanta. Communities um, are gentrifying and um, just in general housing is going so high that your average home buyer can't do it anymore. You know, as we, last week we had another Isaiah passage and here we are again. And in both cases, we've, um, we've talked about how they so closely resemble where we are today. And I just wonder how do we, how do we, take that in? Or maybe how do we help other people see the similarities um, and make those connections? Or maybe the first question would be, what is it that gets in the way from us being able to see ourselves in these stories? And I guess I would ask, can we not see ourselves in these stories? In these stories? I mean, don't we see ourselves? Uh, a lot of what I'm, I'm hearing you say and where I think you're coming from maybe stem from the fact that we have allowed our voice to go silent. Mm. 
you can't say certain things that will offend right. people. Yes. We can't make certain stands because people aren't going to like us if we do. We're, we're perfectly willing to let crazies out there make stands. They, oh, we're the Christians of the world and, and see people leave our churches in droves because what they've seen as Christian doesn't remotely resemble what we understand it to be. We're, we're perfectly happy letting it be that, but how often are we going to stand up and resist that and speak out against that and follow someone who owns that? Because after all, they're taking an unsafe position. Mm-hmm. So who do we have that's out there talking about things like this? Well, uh, Reverend William Barber is yes. talking about you know the Poor People's Campaign is talking about this kind of thing to a degree. But even there, there are limits on what you can say. As we were talking about this, I was thinking about something that said by uh, Dr. Kevin Cosby about gentrification at a major conference that I attended last fall. And it was a great statement. And then I realized I can't say that out loud on this podcast because it would offend people. Mm. You know, so how many other people are out there that want to say it, but we're not going to let them say it, or we don't want to hear the way they say it, because it's going to hurt our delicate little ears if we should happen to admit to the fact that God's calling us to be more than what we're being. You know, and there's there's another aspect, and you're exactly right, David, but there's another aspect. Nikki, was the question you asked, why are we not hearing this, or how do we not see it, or what? Or what is getting in the way from keeping us seeing ourselves in the place that Judah is in? Yeah, so what's getting in the way? There's another aspect to that. And, and what's getting in the way from keeping us from seeing this, seeing our situation in Isaiah? And I'm convinced, you know, this is a, a catchphrase that some people love and some people hate, but it doesn't matter because it's been around before it was a phrase, before it meant anything, it meant something else. Anyway, deconstructing. We have in our country and in Western white European, that's what it is, Western white European Christianity have constructed a theology that everything points to whether or not we're going to go to hell or heaven. And so when we are raised as children, many of us are this way. We, we could read all this stuff, but when we're reading Isaiah, as we mentioned last week, oh, all this is Old Testament stuff. It doesn't matter. Jesus is the new covenant. Mm -hmm. Oh, except when we find that place in Isaiah that, oh, look, this is talking about Jesus, the great comforter. Let's sing the, <laughs> the Handel song, right? And, um, and, then, and then we move on. And then we, we ignore all this stuff, because that's just the Old Testament way of doing things. Now that Jesus is here, we don't have to worry about that stuff. And so we're trained not to pay attention, not to see ourselves if it doesn't relate to Jesus talking about going to hell or heaven, which, by the way, of course, mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't a whole lot. Um, he talks about this kind of stuff. And we're taught how to see Jesus <laughs> and the Gospels that way. And and so we're just, we're, we're ingrained because we're... Do we read the Bible every day? Do we do devotionals every day? We're ingrained with seeing this and not paying attention until it's a matter of God loves me. I made the right decision. I'm going to heaven. And that is part of what deconstructing is all about, is getting through all that so that we could see ourselves in this story that's from beginning to end in our scriptures. There's a whole lot we're not hearing. I mean, it's there. We don't hear it. Uh, I was met with the church last night, actually. And I asked him a question, and none of them gave me the good answer to it. it. Was how many people are aware that in Deuteronomy, for instance, it talks about not having one law for your people and another for the people who live among you, or the aliens live among you, because you yourself were once aliens in a foreign land. So how many people ever heard that preached before and know that that's in the Bible? None of them knew that. We don't talk about that. <laughs> we're too busy talking about all oh, these people at our border trying to get in, and if they get here, then I might lose my 
yacht or something, or they'll take away my, my precious job cleaning attics and plucking chickens, you know, so we got to do everything we can to stop that. That's what they hear. They don't hear what the scriptures say in the context of what's going on. So what you're saying is we should start preaching about uh, preaching against charging interest? Yeah, we probably should. I mean, it wasn't Proctor Baptist Fellowship at one point on a big terror about payday loans and interest being charged and those mm -hmm. things? For the year of Jubilee and forgiving loans every 50 yeah. years. Yeah, I've got a uh, recent college graduate in my house that would really like to see that happen, actually. <laughs> so what do we do? Because we're, we're, we're reading these texts, and we're going to be sitting around in Sunday school classes and small groups and Bible studies <laughs> maybe preaching these texts in the pulpit and, um, you know, who's listening to this um, podcast or preparing to preach maybe. And we're not supposed to be political in our churches, right? Yes. That, and that's where I landed ultimately with but the church. Jesus was, was political. To. Yeah. How do you preach the gospel and it not be political? You take any stand that's a gospel stand or a biblical stand. Mm -hmm. It's going to come across as political today because that's just what we've made it be. 100%. Well, and we have to learn to be okay with that. It's basic sociology, and this is David invited the sociologist to speak last week, and I, I failed, but I want to do it right now. And politi politics is simply the distribution of power. Yes. Who gets to decide what for the group? So it's not a negative thing, but we have made it and celebrated it being so negative so that only the nasty, loud bullies get to do it and then deride everybody for being political if somebody attacks them. And it's simply, hey, Who's getting what? How are we dividing these resources fairly for all people? Access to resources, access to opportunities fairly for all people, or how are we limiting it for a few? So by choosing to not be political in the church, we're choosing to be political by not addressing the things that allow the few to reap the benefits against from the many. You know, I, I think... I mean, this is a really important conversation, it, as hard as it is, and it will be hard for Bible study groups to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. One of the things I, I wonder about is, is if we, you know, if we start, if we start at those places that are so already so divisive, or we filter them in such a way that, you know, we immediately put people in boxes, or we get put in a box. But if we start with, like, fundamental questions, such as, what kind of community do we want to live in? And how does our faith inform that? What, what kind of community does God hope we will live in together? What does that look like? How do we treat each other in that community? What are our values? How do we handle people who are hard to deal with? How do we deal with the outcasts? And we start ask. we will find ourselves having the conversations that we see here in, in Isaiah. But maybe by coming at it from that side, rather than, from the already divided other side. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe we'll still be divided, but you know, how do we solve yeah. our problems is another good question. How much do we care about the future? I saw someone on Twitter the other day said, you know, we can have much more fruitful questions about the big issues in our community and our world today. If we start by talking about children mm. and we, we say, what kind of world do we want for our children? That when, when we start answering that, these these partisan blinders can start falling off. And, and especially if we then bring the lens of faith on it as well to say, you know, what, what kind of world does God hope our children inherit? I don't know. Maybe there are some core foundational questions that help us. There are. And I, and I think in our faith, 
both in the, in the Christian tradition, through Christ in the New Testament, but all of that that is also rooted throughout the Hebrew Scriptures from the beginning in Genesis. If we take a faith approach and say, as people of faith, who is created in the image of God, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and who isn't? Yes. Well, then everybody is. So while politics, so let's play politics for a second. Okay, you don't want to be political. Then politics is telling me that these people are illegal, or these people are, are deservedly poor, or these people are corrupt, elite, rich, or these people are foreigners. Politics is telling me these, or that women are this, or that uh, yeah. LGBT, or that. And God tells me every one of them bears the likeness of God in them. How do I respond to them? And that takes the, if you want to say, take yeah. politics out, that takes the politics out. And then I cannot treat somebody as lesser than me. And I cannot treat somebody as an enemy. And I cannot treat somebody as a deserved poor. Um, because those things are there. They've had bad breaks or people have made it impossible for them to succeed. And I see that and they are holy. And I will respond to that person as a holy person. That changes things. Yeah, but at some point, this still comes down to courage to a degree. Yes. We don't have the courage to make these statements. And there are many things we could say, but we don't or we won't because maybe we don't have the courage or maybe whatever it is. But you notice Isaiah's walking around naked for three years. I mean, that's really some commitment there. I mean, how who of us has the courage to do that to make our point? Who would go that far with it? You know, there, there are lots of other places in the Bible where something big happens and people are being derided and, and being said, oh, they're just this. Uh, you preach about the second chapter of Acts and you talk about how the Holy Spirit comes down and everyone's saying, oh, they're just drunk. It doesn't really matter. Those people were not concerned with how it looked. And we are very concerned with how it looks. Yes. You know, and, and that is a big problem for us. We're concerned with how it looks. Uh, the other point I was making out of all this, because I was thinking about this as David was talking was we talk frequently on this podcast even about how there are differences between black church and white church, how the white church is very much more individualistic and the black church is much more community oriented. And I remember some of the best black church sermons I've heard, best sermons I've heard on the black church where people are talking about these important things head on. Yeah. Just taking them on. They're naming names. You know, they're talking about things with no fear. And it makes a sermon powerful. It makes a message powerful. And it draws people. It, it makes change possible. But the rest of us haven't learned to do that yet because we're too caught up in ourselves and not the community. Well, it's also power. I mean, as Bert said earlier, politics is power. And honestly, there is a lot of our expressions of Christianity that are really shaped by power. Who has the power? Who has the money? Who makes the decisions? And... And, you know, when we start in the white church, there's a lot of power. There's a yeah. lot of position. You know, we talk about county seat churches. We talk about, you know, it's real. And and I think part of our struggle is going to be looking in the mirror, as Nikki is calling us to do, and seeing that our, our position and power affects the way we react to prophetic voices. Uh, and whether or not we feel like we can even speak prophetically. 
because it might, we are the ones that would lose the most. <laughs> right. In some degree, we've climbed that ladder to power and now we've pulled it up behind us and we're afraid of doing anything that would cause us to lower it again. Yes. So, you know, I'm, as I'm listening to this conversation, which it's been, it's been very helpful and I think um, an important conversation that we need to have. You know, if we are talking to people in primarily white congregations, maybe a spiritual practice that we can begin to engage that will feel a little comfortable to us because it is individual is to read these texts and look for ourselves in them. Imagine yeah. if God is saying this to me, where might that show up in my life? Uh, because we can all, we live in um, one of the biggest economies in the world. Um, by the nature of that, we will find ourselves in this text. It is simply the cost of living in the developed world, quite frankly. And so I think that maybe if we did want to start by ourselves is to begin to read with the particular question, where am I in this? What might be God be asking me to change through this text? And Mickey, I can't think of a better way to end this conversation than what you just suggested. Because I hope that if groups will do what you say, Nikki, that this conversation will continue. Uh, it's not something we're going to solve quickly. Um, but if this text is no. prophetic for us, and we need to pay attention. And if we don't, it's to our own peril. Thank you all for this good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to the Faith Element Podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Learn more about our Faith Element Bible Study curriculum at faithelement.net. Faith Element is a service of Faith Lab.